pray for God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, no doubt we've been in prayer for your word, that it may be a blessing to us this day, but also now formally doing that as well again, and asking for your mercies as we read your word, as it's ministered to us, to us and as, it, as we respond to it both in this time and wherever it is that you take us to serve as living sacrifices for you, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12 as we carry on in our series on therefore passages, or passages that certainly have therefores all around them, and this one does, that's for sure. It's right in the middle of three different therefores for sure. Hebrews 12.1, Hebrews 12.12, 12, and then in Hebrews 12.28, we continue looking at Hebrews 12, at superior privileges and superior callings that we have as Christians, when we're Christians, we pick up this portion, which is really the number two point, the heavenly mount, which is a superior place to which we get to go and worship. We'll be reading this portion then with that in mind. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God's word be of a blessing to us this morning out. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I, I can't imagine at times, I know I had it happen in my own experience, uh, that uh, there's times where you need to get a little bit of perspective and recognize just how good one has it. I remember that from as a child and my mother and father who had to live through a Nazi occupation and hardly had any food and they would look at me being picky and they would say to me, they didn't have to talk about you know, the, the, the hungry in China, they knew what it was to be hungry and they said, you do not know what it means to be hungry. And that would smarten me up. And I would realize how good I had it. And sometimes we need that. that. That's one of the things that's going on here in this passage where the writer of the Hebrews wants to remind his readers how good they have it, how privileged they are, how much better it is for them 
living on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ as opposed to being on the first side of Christ or that former side where Christ had yet to come. We've looked, uh, as we've been in Hebrews 12 here, as we consider these therefore passages, we're plunked down here in this section of Hebrews that's arguably one of the most familiar portions of Hebrews, isn't it? Uh, because it speaks about, in Hebrews 11, about the heroes of faith. We read about Hebrews 12, about the, those introductory words that tell us that we're to be running the race of endurance and faith marked out for us. And uh, last week we had a chance to take a look at part of the latter half of at least the, the initial portions of that latter half of Hebrews 12. And we talked that we were going to be looking at this for a few weeks at the superior callings and privileges of Christians. And those superiorities are meant to be a further motivation to run the race that is marked out. For us. We've already been told in the earlier portions that we ought to run that race with a spiritual focus on Christ, uh, the author and the perfecter of our faith, uh, remembering his example, his ultimate example, his sacrifice for sin, his exaltation at the right hand of God now, to remember the Old Testament saints who came before he did and who ran their race prior to Christ's coming, and yet they rested on God's promises. And of course there was this calling also to encourage that run of faith, even though it would be trying to remember, to keep perspective, to zoom out and be able to say, hey, the reason why it's like this is because, uh, not by chance, not because of that fate has struck you or anything like that, but that this is all coming to you by your fatherly the fatherly hand of God who cares for you deeply. And then we looked at that superior calling that we saw last week, which was that pursuit of holiness. And you'll remember if you were here that that included a seeking to live in peace with others while at the same time trying to live that distinctively Christian life and to live in purity of truth, purity of faith, purity of life, and not to trade the gospel for anything, because there isn't anything more important, there's nothing more superior, uh, nothing that matches the gospel promises in the gospel life. Well, this morning now, we, we see that, that that superior calling to holiness is followed with some more reasoning, because we start out with the word for or because. Why should we be living this pursuit of holiness? Now, he's given us a lot of reasons why already, but he wants to continue to give those reasons to us. And so the writer is, is reasoning more as to why we should seek this, this superior way to live. And the way he puts it is maybe not the way we would necessarily put those things, but, but it is the way that we ought to see them. We need to look, he says, at another kind of superiority. superiority. And, he, and then what he does is he shows us the superior mountain. 
He shows us Mount Zion versus Mount Sinai. The superior calling to holiness is meant to flow from a, a superior privilege that's been given to the people of God in Christ, the New Testament believer, as they come to God in worship. So we're going to focus on that privilege this morning, and we want to take a look at that contrast that the writer puts out. We want to see the elaboration of what that, that contrast that leads to coming to Christ as a privilege. We're going to look at that beautiful elaboration and to see also then the impact that this coming to God provides for us. So we start out here by seeing this, this contrast between the earthly Mount Sinai and the heavenly Mount Zion. And the writer is giving you a lesser to the greater argument here. He starts by telling us that you're not coming to what may be touched. He, he's starting to discuss Mount Sinai. And he says that we're, we're called to live a life of holiness because of this privilege that we've been given as, the far, as far as which mountain to which we're coming. A mountain that's better than this Mount Sinai. You're coming to the heavenly Mount Zion and not the earthly Mount Sinai. So you got this contrast built between the earthly Mount and the heavenly mount, and it's to show that that heavenly mount is by far better than the earthly mount. We read that you have not come to what may be touched. That is something that is on earth, something that's tangible, something that you can feel physically. And the picture of words that's being painted here is that of Mount Sinai, when the law was given to the people of God and they were called together uh, and to gather around the mountain, but not to touch it. And we kind of picked up on that a little bit out of Deuteronomy 5. And, and the scene is one of terror and of awe and of fear and of dread. So much so that when God spoke from Sinai, the people who recognize not only their creatureliness, but their unholiness, they, they begged Moses that no further messages be spoken to them. They couldn't take it. They were so overwhelmed. And obviously the people didn't view that experience of being in the austere presence of God to be a privilege, right? If we, if we had a chance, you know, to go visit the governor, or if we had a chance to, to visit some person that we had a great deal of respect for or admiration, we'd be sitting there just bubbling, wouldn't we? Man, can you believe that we're here? Boy, do we ever have it made. We get to be here in the presence of this person that I've always admired. You know, even the boys and girls, if they get to go visit a grandma or a grandpa, 
I even have that, you know, when I go to visit my grandkids. I'm just delighted, and my children too, but, you know, I'm, I'm delighted to, to be in their presence. It's a privilege. That wasn't a privilege then to these people at all. The giving of the law at that event underscored their unworthiness. Now mind you, it wasn't as if in the, in the days of Moses that the gospel wasn't preached to them because Hebrews 4 tells us in a couple of different places that that wasn't the case at all. The good news was preached to them, it says. It's just that it was in a form that awaited the coming of Christ and spoke of the great need for Jesus Christ to come. But in the giving of the law at Sinai, that utter holiness of God and the utter non-holiness, the unholiness of the people was starkly contrasted. And the law delivered, pronounced so definitively this barrier between God and man, this one who was holy, holy, holy on the one hand, and the unholy on the other. And that was a fearful thing. And we remember that when it came to the worship of the Lord in those days, except for the high priest or the mediator which Moses had become, uh, nobody was allowed to come into the presence of God. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which still gets celebrated by certain people today, Jewish people today, spoke to this. When the priest would come into the Holy of Holies, of course it can't, it can't be celebrated to that end anymore, of course, because there's no tabernacle and there's no temple. But in the old days, in the Old Testament days, they would, he would come in there and he would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice on the mercy seat or what we call the throne of grace. And that event was the closest that the people could get to communion with God in worship through that priest, through his sacrifice. And of course, both of those things are just types of the true great high priest that it was to come because the high priest wasn't righteous and the blood was just that of bulls and goats, as you know. Well, in the Old Testament time then, that was the closest and the most intimate, intimate that you could get with God. And yet it was a time of great fear and trepidation where even the word of God could not be heard without dread. Considering that that was a time prior to the coming of Christ, the atmosphere was understandable because while, while atonement was pictured in the time of Moses and in the New Testament times, the fulfillment of those pictures in the coming of Jesus hadn't happened yet. So the argument that the writer of Hebrews is trying to draw in calling people to a pursuit of holiness, remember that's the thing here, pursue holiness because he wants them to see the times in which they are living. So that they would see that they, ha they are a privileged lot. You're better off today than you were back then. Do you know how good you have it? It's a privileged time. And that should have been an incentive, of course, because the Hebrews were, as he's writing these Hebrews, they're under trial, right? 
and they have to see that that's from the fatherly hand of God, but they're tempted to go back to the Old Testament ways, kind of like the, the, the Israelites were tempted to go back to Egypt. They said, no, no let's, not go, let's not press forward, let's not endure, let's not run the race, let's go backwards, let's go back to the starting line. Let's go back to the old ways because then people will leave us alone. And so, yeah, they, they, had to, they had to see how good they had it, even though sometimes it didn't seem like they had it that good. But if they went back to the Old Testament ways of worship, it'd be like turning back the clock and missing out on the privileges that were theirs to enjoy now in the New Testament time. Missing out on those privileges, you see, would minimize and it would eliminate the motivation for them to pursue holiness all the time. And the writer is saying, when you're coming to God now, you're coming to a better circumstance. You've got to know how good you have it. Because one thing, you're not coming to an earthly place. You're coming to a heavenly place. It's the heavenly Mount Zion. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. You're coming to the real holy city. You're coming to the most holy place where God is dwelling. And it isn't just the priest that's coming there. Now the great high priest went before you. But it's not just the priest that's coming there. It's you. Through the person who opened the way for you to get there. To go there. Jesus Christ. Now when we're speaking here about that we're coming. Right? That's what it says here. Right? You have not come to what may be touched. When we're speaking here about that you're coming, we're not talking about you know, something that's going to happen someday when we're going to go to heaven. It's not an end-of-the-world event. It's an action that's happened and a, an action that continues to happen. But what does the writer exactly mean when he says you're coming? Well, through the book of Hebrews... We're taught that we're coming in worship when we're coming to this heavenly Mount Zion, the place where God is, the place where Jesus is, sitting at God's right hand. You know, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Right? We read that earlier in Hebrews. That we may obtain mercy and grace in time and help in help in time of need. And since we have such a great high priest, Jesus, who has opened the way before us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having boldness to enter the most holy place to the, by the blood of Jesus, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. That coming isn't something that's coming. 
It's something that's happened and is happening. And instead of coming to a mountain that we've had to dread because of the fact that the mediator hadn't yet come, even Jesus Christ, and even Moses was afraid of this place, we don't need to come into the presence of God that way anymore. It's not that we don't revere or that we are not in awe because the passage ends in chapter 12 with those very things. But this is this remarkable contrast to what was and what is. As we're called to come into the presence of God as the assembly of God in Jesus Christ. Worship is still a wondrous thing. We're in the heavenly presence of God after all. But the terror and the dread is removed because of the blood of Christ. One person put it that because Jesus is our forerunner, we've arrived by faith at the heavenly Jerusalem and we may enter into the most holy place in worship. They couldn't even think about that in the Old Testament. But we can. The contrast in coming to God is there. Now, I can't imagine today that when you come to worship, that you come here thinking, oh, this is just dreadful. I'm, I'm in the presence of God. It's more of the, the opposite, I think, that we have, to, we have to recognize what a privilege we have here. I mean, we might not dread coming here, but it's, there's a very good possibility. And again, I'll say this again, because I've seen it over the years. <laughs> that people don't see the privilege of this at all. They don't. They clock in, but they don't see the privilege of it. I mean, that happens all the time. But this contrast is, is meant in part to say to us, do you know how good you have it when you have the opportunity to come to worship? And if that's not enough, then what you also have is this elaboration of what this coming is like. You have a beautiful description and elaboration of this worship and this mountain. He says it's like the city of the living God which gives you the sense of a city that endures. It's not like the city of Jerusalem. If you're thinking about the Middle East right now, you think about what goes on there. You think about what has gone on there. That is a place that just destroys itself all the time. And of course, back in the day, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And with it, all the Old Testament ceremonies. But a city that endures, whose builder and city and founder is God, shows its superiority. And that city doesn't get destroyed. It's a place where we come to worship. It says where myriads of angels reside in the praise of God. Festively proclaiming the wonders that God has done in Christ as the creator and recreator of his people. 
And then we hear that we go there and worship. We're going to the church of the firstborn. Esau, we mentioned last time, he was the firstborn, right, of the flesh. But he wasn't an heir of the mercies and blessings of God, which come by grace. Called to the consecrated service of God like the priests of old and served in God's presence. And then we hear, remarkably, that we go to worship with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Did you catch that? Those are those who have gone the way before us who are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's a remarkable revelation. Because if you've lost somebody in the Lord, when you come to worship, you have the opportunity to worship with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It makes you want to come to worship because you worship with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And we go to the God who's judge of all and and who's in his, in his sovereignty has judged his people as righteous through the blood of Christ. Whose spirits are now with him as those who have died in the Lord. We, when we go to worship, that's where we go. In the presence of all the saints that have gone before us and who are resting from their labors and who are joining with us in the praise of God. You know, worship's meant to unite us. And that's one of the ways it does it. As earth and heaven come together. In the praise of God. You see how good you have it? I have to think about that. The sovereign God is, as we worship, we are also in the presence of our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who reconciled us to God by way of of a better covenant than that of Moses because his blood could do what the blood of bulls and goats could not and because his priesthood was better than the priesthood of Aaron and one whose priesthood endures, one whose intercession endures, one whose blood shed, a, shed speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why is that? Well, because the blood of Abel just cried out for vengeance and the blood of Christ cries out with pardon peace, forgiveness, justification, because he's the true brother of his people. Cain never was. Cain would say, am I my brother's keeper? And Christ would say, I am. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother's. So you can see the logic behind the calling to live a life of impact, uh, of holiness. And, and that gets, gets us to that impact. So you see that elaboration, you see the contrast, but you see the impact. It's like the writer saying, since you've been reconciled to God so that you can worship him without dread, and you can gather before him in this privileged, beautiful way that can only be only could only have been typified in the times of Old Testament. Thanks to the blood of Christ, you can do that. That understanding, he said, should cause us as a kingdom of priests, the church of the firstborn, 
to live out that consecration. That call to holiness. In all that you're doing every day, pursue holiness because look what you get to do. Look how good you have it. And see, that's why it makes sense later in the next chapter that Hebrews would say, let us continually offer sacrifices of praise to God. Therefore, by the way. <laughs> Therefore. Let's continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Because we have it so good to be able to worship God. But also, don't, don't forget to do good and to share. Because with such sacrifices, God is pleased. That's the pursuit of holiness. Come worship and come work for the Lord. That's everything. Come on the Lord's day, work for him every day. That's everything. As the priests that you've become as Christians. The superior privilege of worship where the dread has been removed and the beauty is beheld leads to a superior calling of holy living. You come to worship, you get to worship in this privileged way every time the call to worship comes. And that privilege opens to you by Christ, uh, that's opened to you by Christ, and it's appreciated by you when you appreciate that, when you value that. Then... You get to show your appreciation with that through your pursuit of holiness the rest of the week. Pursue holiness because look at what Christ, your mediator, has done for you. He's consecrated you. He's reconciled to you, you to God so you can worship in his presence from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And, and you need to see that for what it is. You need to see how good you have it. It's a privilege. <laughs> and he says, then by that same Christ, then, who gave you that privilege to worship him, live a life of holiness worthy of the gospel, showing then, not only by your worship, but also by your work, that God has consecrated you as his priest to serve him always. That's quite a calling. It's quite a life. It's quite the privileges. But yeah, what a privilege that's been given to us to worship God. Thanks to the reconciling blood of our, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He's so great. He gives us great things to do. Including the privilege of worshiping him. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer, shall we? God, our Heavenly Father, good for us to be able to be reminded here of the superior privileges and callings you've given to us because of the superior priest that Jesus Christ is. May it make all the difference, Father, for us as we contemplate again how good we have it when we've known Christ. We'd ask that you'd hear us in Jesus.